I want us to think about the, the idea or the concept of irony this morning. What is irony? This is what the dictionary says. It says it's an expression of one's meaning by using a language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for some kind of effect. Another way one could say is it's a state of affairs or an event that seems to deliberately contradict what one might expect. That's what an irony is. Um, if you want to think about an example of an irony, one, one just really good example would be the Titanic. It's tragic, but it's ironic. Not because it's a ship that sank, but it's because a ship that sank that they said was unsinkable on its first voyage. That's what makes it ironic. Last night I was trying to think of something ironic in my life that I could share. Uh, most of my irony is private. Um, but my wife gave me one. Uh, this is a, a personal example of irony. I, I love to camp. Um, I especially love what I call man camping, which is uh, uh, the austere version, not fam camping, which is bring as much as you can with you and eat junk food uh, with mosquitoes. But man camping is more austere, and certainly women can man camp. Uh, but that's, that's, I, I especially enjoy that, that kind of camping. And I had a trip once when uh, I was in Alaska. I went with a buddy of mine to Denali National Park, which is the park that overlooks uh, what in the lower 48 they call Mount McKinley. It's actually Denali Mountain. And uh, the way this camp uh, trip works, it is the wild wilderness. Um, in fact, you have to register and apply to camp in this national park because they want to make sure they track you um, or at least have accountability for you. And they also ensure that you won't see human beings while you're camping. They, seg- they segment out uh, the land of this, this national park so that they only have so many people camping in certain areas. And so there are no campgrounds. There are no fire pits. In fact, there are no humans. You're the only people during your stay. And so my friend and I, we were on this, this three-day trip uh, in Denali. And one of our goals was to see wildlife. All kinds of wildlife. Uh, to include grizzly bears. We wanted to see grizzly bears. And, and this is grizzly bear country. This is the thick of grizzly bear country. We're above the tree line, and so there'd be times we were even walking through snow in June. And uh, the first day, we saw all sorts of animals and critters, and that was great, but we didn't get to see grizzly bears. Uh, but we really wanted to see them, which is ironic. And the second day, we saw all sorts of things, um, but we didn't see grizzly bears. And here's the, here's the ironic thing that I do not recommend. On the third day, we woke up that morning and facing the great mountain, we bowed on the ground in prayer, and we prayed to the Lord that if he truly loved us, that he might bring us some grizzly bears. <laughs> Which is, um, I now know, prayer works, and uh, that you ought not to pray for things that you're not sure about. Uh, because that day, we went over the hill and encountered three grizzly bears, one of which took a great interest in us for the next hour of my life, which I thought was the last hour of my life. Um, and, you know, the story, you know how it ends because I'm here. Um, but that's irony. Irony is, 
is when people looking outside in go, you've got to be kidding me. He doesn't see that? Like, you know, it's one thing not to believe in God and to pray for grizzly bears, but when you actually believe it might work, it's foolish. There is a version of irony called dramatic irony. It's a literary device or tragic irony. It's a literary technique, and it's one um, that's used where the significance of a character's words or actions is obvious to the audience, but is oblivious to the character. So in that sort of irony, the audience is invited in to the irony, but part of the power of that is, is that the character himself is oblivious to what's happening. And so he's acting out the irony unknowingly, but, but we have more information. And so we see it in this morning... That's what, that's what we have the opportunity to do. Uh, John, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, um, he writes so well. Uh, this, is, this is just a beautiful piece. It's true, but we can say this about true work of God. It is a beautiful piece of literature. And we're being invited in to a scene, an episode of dramatic irony, the way that John has arranged it for us. He's arranged it so that it's in living color, so that we see the truth working itself out among unknowing or oblivious characters in profound fashion, in living color, so that we can see it in its clearest and purest form and then apply some of these questions to our own life. That's what we're going to be doing this morning as we observe the life of Christ before Pontius Pilate. And so if you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 18. If you're using one of our Bibles, um, certainly if you don't have one, you can keep it uh, as a gift, but it's page 752. Whether or not you come this Friday is um, one thing, but maybe you could think of this morning as preparation for uh, what's going to happen as symbolically on Friday. This is about Friday. I'm going to read this, uh, starting in verse uh, 28. John 18, verse 28. And as I read it, I, I want to ask you to have your attention for the irony in the text. Just, you're going to hear things. This is the final day of our Christ. Uh, Actually, I should say before I start reading, uh, what's happened so far, Christ has been betrayed. He's been arrested in the garden. He's been brought before the uh, Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He's been found guilty, though innocent. So he's been found guilty with no evidence. And they have, um, essentially at sunrise, uh, this is like the antithesis of the resurrection. At first light, they bring him to be crucified. Um, And now we pick up in the 28th verse. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. 
So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words of Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did some others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple, in a purple robe, and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Do you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be the king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the palace known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is... Gabatha, 
it was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Uh, that story is so big. Um, there are, there's a few characters in this story I want us to look at this morning. I want us to focus on uh, the chief priests, which John calls the Jews. He's not categorizing all the Jewish nation He's saying this is the Jewish authority. This is, at the end of the day, the Jewish vote on Christ. And then then we're going to look a little bit at Pontius Pilate. But first, if we look at the Jews, what do we see right off the bat? As they they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, and right off the bat, they they show this, this. This is the first irony that drops, is they're bringing this man to be murdered, and yet they will not step into Pilate's palace because they want to be ceremonially clean for the Passover. Did you get that? They want to be clean for the Passover. They're getting ready to celebrate a ceremony that remembers how God rescued them from captivity, and they want to be clean for it. They're getting ready to remember when they cried out to God and God sent, God sent through Moses his salvation and God brought them out of captivity, that's what they're getting ready to remember in Passover. They're preparing for Passover and they want to be clean for this opportunity to remember the salvation that came through God by the blood of a lamb, not by some act of obedience, not by some great litany of what they've done right, but in fact, simply by the fact that through faith, they put the blood of a lamb on their doorframe, and therefore God rescues them from the Egyptians. That's what they want to be clean to remember today as they hand Jesus over. That is ironic. that these men are remembering a day where faith in the blood of a lamb saved them from captivity. And they won't walk into a Gentile's house because they want to be clean. This kind of faith, if it can even be called that, This kind of faith is the faith of expressed righteousness. This is the sense that that what we have done is on display for God to see, and therefore we are found righteous. That's this kind of faith that you're seeing here this morning, the the faith of the Jews. There's a faith of God, look at me. Look at what I've done. This is the faith that we all dance between, right? Even many of us who come to Christ through faith oftentimes live by works. So we believe that Jesus died for us, but then we go along working as though our ceremonial cleanliness 
is what in fact keeps us in the kingdom. This is how they're living. They're living in a way that says, look at me. It's behavior oriented. It's not relationship oriented. It's very visual, very public. It's a faith that is rule defined. This kind of person is a person that says there is truth and I am living it. Or if you untwist that, what they're saying is, is my life is the pattern of truth. And while they say they're waiting for a king, they're waiting for a savior, right? These All of these people, the irony is, is that the very people crying out that God would send them a Messiah turns their Messiah over to be crucified. While they're waiting for a king, while they're even waiting for an insurrection and a revolution, and they're waiting for judgment, and they're waiting for justice, and they're waiting for God to come and take care of all of this mess, while they're waiting for that, they are absolute, they would reject any notion, any notion whatsoever that they need to change the way that they live on the inside. The king can come and do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't meddle with our souls. They've got it all worked out. God just needs to come. This, is this your idea of the Passover? Some people, I think, we accidentally have this idea that to us the Passover has a lot more to do with what God did to the Egyptians than how God saved his people. That in our mind, it has a lot more to do with the justice coming and the judgment coming and things being made right and all this being taken care of. And there's a sense of, that's right, that's how it needs to happen, this is true, right? And all of this, and it's so easy to forget that the only thing that matters to us is that we have blood on the doorframe. We can be so worried about being ceremonially clean, just get blood on the doorframe. you don't know the story in, in Exodus, the Lord says this. He says, tonight, this is the last one that's going to happen. The last, the last curse I bring on Egypt tonight, you will be freed. Now listen closely. This is what you need to do. You need to sacrifice a lamb and you need to put blood all over your doorway because I'm going to pass through tonight. My angel will pass through. And if I do not see the blood of the lamb, I will strike dead the firstborn child of each home. And he says to them, eat with your sandals on your feet and eat with your cloak on because it's going to happen. Eat in such a way that has the imminent salvation of God in mind. But so easily we can get caught up in doing in the behavior of the kingdom instead of the blood on the doorframe. And you'll see this. You'll see what this ends up being is self-idolatry. This, this idea of, and I believe there's truth. My life defines it and I live it. Therefore, I'm righteous. I'm righteous because I'm just, this is the voice of the wrong side of the church speaking. This is where the church goes wrong. Is no longer talking about the blood on the door, but rather talking about the ceremony and getting things right in order to be ready when God comes, as though we don't want blood on the door, as though we welcome God to come in and we want him to come into our house and see how clean it is. 
You don't want that. We're desperate to keep God out of the house. Even now, this very day, you know what's happening at home in these homes? As they're turning Christ over right now, the wives and family members of the home are going through and cleaning up all, everything that's leavened. They're getting anything that's leavened out of the house and they're cleaning up whatever they can out of the house. This is happening as Jesus is before Pilate. And it says at the sixth hour, Pilate hands him over. The sixth hour also correlates customarily to the time when all the husbands would go home and sacrifice the lamb. This is hap- It's ironic. This fashion of saying there's truth and I'm living it and therefore I'm righteous is self-idolatry. And we will ultimately bow to anything on this earth to preserve that idea. Call yourself Christian. Call yourself holy. Call yourself righteous. It doesn't matter. If you are justifying yourself by your behavior, you will worship anything to avoid Christ. Christ is before Pilate because he has the audacity to imply that there's something wrong with church-going people. We ought to be able to hear that because what grows the church is not behavior. What grows the church is an infatuation with the blood on the doorframe. That's what God's people need to be. We need to be about looking at the doorframe all the blood on the doorframe. This is how we're saved. This is how we're made holy. This is how all, all of our hope is in the fact that God is passing over judgment because of what Christ has done on the doorframe. When we forget that and instead turn to our behavior, we preach a false gospel. The danger is that we become a people that says, look at us instead of being a people that says, look at him. This is the first group of people uh, in the story. And they bring Jesus to the second group of people, who's Pontius Pilate. Here's the irony in Pilate. Pilate is the governor of Judea. He's been placed in charge. He is judge. And yet, as he's judge, out of his mouth comes this phrase, what is truth? That is ironic. That he's placed in judgment, and yet he denies truth. And if this isn't the world, I don't know what is. This is the classic formation of what the world is. The world is, the world is famous for denying all truth, all objective truth. They say your entire experience in life is subjective. There is no objective truth. There's hardly a college in the country to include Christian religious institutions that will still say there is objective truth. Everywhere you go, truth is an experience that's personal. And yet in the world, we have no qualms judging. We say there is no truth, and yet we love to judge. We judge anything and everything. We always are judging. There seems to be no logical problem behind us saying there is no truth, and our willingness 
in fact, infatuation with judging. And that's what we find here. We find the very man who's placed in the power of judgment is the very man who very wisely says, I mean, wisely in his foolishness, says what is truth. This is what truth is in the world. And and you're one of these two people if you're not saved by the blood of the Lamb. And you're probably prone to be one of these two people if you don't remind yourself of the blood of the Lamb. On the one, you have those who say, there is truth and I represent it. And on the other side, they say there is no truth. But the way by which they judge, this is how they judge. This is their version of operational truth, just day-to-day truth. It is their best estimation of what's best for them that day. I don't care whether you're quoting the highest, smartest philosophers, whether it's Immanuel Kant or Hume or Nietzsche or whatever. It all boils down to this. Your worldly sense of truth is your estimation of what seems best to you today. That's it. That's how you're behaving. You're behaving upon what you estimate to be best for you. And by best, I mean whatever secures for you your, your, your current environment, what gives you power, what gives you favor with other people, whatever gives you the end state that you want for this day, that's what's true. I can't tell you how many times I have gone two steps into a conversation with somebody where we end up here. I don't believe there's anything true, really. You just say, what about Hitler? Oh, well, yeah, that guy. It's because we estimate what our version of truth is, what's best for me today and my circumstances. That is ironic that we operate that way. The religion of the world is preserving what seems right for you right now. And the thing is, is I believe the world is desperate and hungry for truth. So they deny it. And when they deny it, they deny it in a tired and exhausted and bleak way. You can tell people you're sharing with that they want, there's many of them want truth, but it goes against their dogma. Their entire operating principle would be overturned. And so they reject the very thing they want. That's why we missionary. This is Pontius Pilate. For all his words on justice, he met Jesus at breakfast and handed him over to be crucified at lunch. I mean, you'll read, you'll read commentators who say Pontius Pilate tried hard to save Jesus. I say he met him at breakfast and he handed him over at lunch. Don't talk to me about hard. Do you see what happens when your version of truth is what's best for you today? You are six hours away from torturing somebody. I mean, Pontius Pilate does this. This is the irony of it all. I find no basis for a charge against this man. Should I release him? No, give us Barabbas. Okay, I'll torture him. I find no basis for a charge against this man. Should I release him? No, because you would be unfaithful to Caesar. Okay, I'll mock him. I find no basis for a charge against this man. Crucify him. Okay. Is he innocent or not? 
this is the basis that we do harmful things to people, is when we operate by what seems right to me right now. This is why thousands upon thousands of people betray ethics in the workplace. This is why thousands of people leave their spouses. This is why thousands of people give away their virginity or take someone's virginity. This is why thousands of people cheat on their homework. This is why thousands of people cut off somebody on the way to work. Right? You cut somebody off on the way to work, and what are you doing in your mind? I'm in a rush, and the guy is a nignog. That's what it seems like to you. Is he in a rush? Could he be in a rush? Well, you know, truth is subjective. See, there's a good chance we walk out this building and we behave like the world. How do you behave? What does that confess about you? This is going to sound too strong. I mean, someone's going to tell me, it was too strong, you shouldn't have said this, but I will, because it isn't. And I say this, you, you watch history, you deploy, and you watch life unfold, and you will know this is true. We are always and only six hours away from killing an innocent person. You, th- you, think, you think you're not. If you are not living convicted by the truth of Jesus Christ, if you're living on a basis of what seems right to you right now, You are always and only six hours away from doing something atrocious and vile. The people in this world, in Uganda, that are doing atrocious things, they're no different than you are. We are humans. Their soul is made of the same genetic spiritual material as ours. We're always and only six hours away from handing somebody over to be crucified. Unless you are driven by real truth. In both of these cases, the Sanhedrin or Pontius Pilate, they're living a lie. One believes they've cornered the market on truth and that they're therefore living it. And so for someone to come in and say that's hypocrisy and you're sinful is to them worthy of death. And on the other one, There's a sense of there is no truth, and so the only reason that they're crucifying Jesus is because Jesus threatens to alter their peaceful state of life. If we're not in Christ, we're in one of those two camps. And even when we're in Christ, we drift into these camps. What we need is the whole truth. Listen to what Jesus says here. Pilate wants to know who he is. By the way, Pilate isn't... The irony... The third irony of this whole passage is that Jesus plays the king the whole way through. I'm so proud of him. You read the story. He goes, even the emphatic in the Greek, when when Pontius Pilate says, you're the king? The emphasis is on the you. Like, you've got to be kidding me. And he says, what do you do? And what does Jesus do? Jesus responds with a question. Who does that to the person who holds their life in your hands? Only a king does that. Jesus behaves the king. And in fact, if you follow almost every one of Pontius Pilate's statements, they edify and validate the person of Jesus Christ. So you are a king. I find no basis. Here is the man, ho anthropos. It later became known in Greek as a way of talking about almost a heavenly being. Here is the man. Here is your king. 
That's the, that, that is the public words of Pontius Pilate. I mean, the dramatic irony of it is that Pontius says everything that's true and yet knows not truth himself. But in all of this, this is what Jesus says in verse 37. You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Truth is bigger than simply uh, the opposite of a falsehood. I think Jesus is more than that. I think the truth that Jesus Christ brings is the revelation of wholeness. It's, there's a small truth that he connects to a big truth. That's what's happening here. Is to, to the Jews who, who are living a small truth, he brings the whole truth. And to the, the, the world that is living with no truth, he counters it with truth. I am the truth. Jesus says. Here's a way that all of this maybe lands practically. You know, I was thinking, somebody's going to sit here and go, well, yeah, I agree, what, what does that mean? I'll pick on your friends and relatives for a second. Uh, many of us have a friends or relatives who are good people. That's what you'll tell me. Or you'll tell one another, good people. You may even say, they're better than I am. Like, they're good. That's what you'll say. And then when you visit with them and you try to talk about the Lord, they immediately counter you with this subject of goodness. They'll, they'll throw out the big bomb questions, like how can a good God let bad things happen? Ooh. And then they'll, they'll throw out the, the African in the jungle. Are you here to tell me that if an African in the jungle doesn't hear about Jesus Christ, that God's going to judge him? Even though I seriously doubt your friend is an African in the jungle who hasn't heard about Jesus Christ, which is material to the conversation, by the way. Uh, but oftentimes what we do is we step back, whew, you know, after you've lost round one and you're dealing with, well, how, do, how does all this get around? And so, and so sometimes what you're tempted to do is to live Christian, but kind of go over and see what the world has to say. Well, what does the world have to say? So you're like, well, I believe in Jesus and my friend is a good person. Well, what is truth? What is truth? Let's make sure we have our theology right this year, uh, that we don't whisk through Easter with bad theology. What is true about that? Who is good? I mean, I'll agree with you that the innocent man in the African jungle goes to heaven. I just don't think he's there. Who is good? 
did Jesus Christ come to save or to judge? See, we have this, sometimes we interpret as Jesus Christ came to judge. And so that the reason he came to earth was to separate the good people from the bad people. That's not why he came. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. He came to cover everyone's doorframe with blood so that we might be seen as righteous. His mission was a saving mission, not a judging mission. The disposition of his ministry is forgiveness. The disposition of those who hailed him, like John the Baptist, was repentance. This is all about becoming righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only theology that comes out of the Bible. But sometimes when we're cornered with this, we say, what is truth? We're convicted. We're like, but they're good. What you're telling me is what the Pharisees are saying, which is they seem to match the code of behavior that you've set up in your own life. Neither you nor your friend or family member are good. You are dependent upon the blood of Jesus Christ so that the Lord passes over you in judgment. Peter says it this way, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And for this, the righteous will crucify him, and for this, those in the world will crucify him. It's the only time in, in in history where those sides of the poles cooperate. Is the blood on your doorframe? Amen. Will you pray with me?